Have you ever encountered a time in life when it was difficult to hope? I mean, I mean, one of those times when everything was just a wreck. Things were really bad, and there's no sign of anything getting better. One of those times when it feels like you have reason to doubt God. Maybe to even give up on Him, whether it's suffering or disappointment or doubt, that it's so massive that all you can really do is look out the window and think, good riddance, what is going on? Happy Advent greetings, everyone. Um, now, if you're like most people I know, then you have faced one of these times before, and, and maybe you've faced this, this situation many times. Um, so here's the real question I want to consider together. What do you do when you're in that place, and then hope appears? A flicker of light appears. Something turns around for the better. A good report comes. Conception takes place where there's been barrenness. What do you do? Sometimes it's the scariest thing that can happen to us, I think. Um, you know, we're, we're afraid to give into it. We maybe hedge our bets and think, I can't risk hoping again. I can't handle more disappointment because if I risk hoping again, um, if I risk believing that God is good after all, that this is a, a gift of grace, then if things go bad again, it's, it's just too painful. I can't deal with it. Or maybe on the other hand, do you let that hope flicker and breathe um, and stir up your faith despite the ongoing brokenness that probably still exists around you too? Well, as we move forward in Ruth today, this is the sort of grim situation we've entered into. It's the story of Naomi and Ruth, women who have every reason to give up on God, but now they begin to encounter some glimpses of hope. Hope appears for them. And so we'll ask, uh, how, how does this hope appear? Where does it come from? And then also, what do these women do when it shows up? What's their response? So here's our main idea to explore. Hope appears when God reveals his steadfast love. It's really simple. Hope appears when God reveals his steadfast love. Now, I'm not talking about hope that means wishful thinking, as in, I hope the Canucks win, or I hope I win in the lottery, or I hope Chick-fil-A opens in Vancouver. That's my key hope. Um, I'm talking about something a little bit different, a Christian hope, um, which I think John Piper helpfully defines this way. So um, listen to this quote with me. When you read the word hope in the Bible, like in 1 Peter 1.13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope is not wishful thinking. It's not, I don't know if it's going to happen, but I hope it happens. That's absolutely not what is meant by Christian hope. Christian hope is when God has promised that something is going to happen and you put your trust in that promise. Christian hope is a confidence that something will come to pass because God has promised it will come to pass. Hope comes from the promises of God rooted in the work of Christ. So hope is like faith, but it's in the future tense. It's believing God is good that he does love you, and that he will rescue us from all evil on the last day. This is the hope that appears when God reveals his steadfast love. Now that little phrase, steadfast love, is, we need to unpack a bit too. It's a translation of a Hebrew word called chesed. And can, can you say that with me? It's really fun. Chesed. Go ahead and try. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of guttural sounds. Um, uh, henceforth, I'll just say chesed to spare you. Um, his, his said is a, a common theme in the book of Ruth, and it's a common way that God is described in the Bible. It means demonstrated 
loyal love. I'm saying hesed because it's not exactly uh, translatable, but demonstrated loyal love. It's over-the-top active love. Uh, there's no shoulds. There's no obligation in hesed. It's given freely, without coercion. Uh, my son Elliot has this awesome Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. If any of you have kids or are familiar with kids, you might be familiar with this Bible. It's, it's really great. But its translation of Hesed, I think, is the best one I've found. Um, in Psalm 23, it translates Hesed as God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's what it is. So in short, Hesed is the gospel in action. And hope appears when God reveals this, this has said, his steadfast love. Now, there's some moments in the Old Testament, in the Bible, when it's easy to see God act, like in the gift of creation, or in the dramatic Exodus story, or in God's making his covenant promises to Abraham and to Israel on the mountain. But we're in the book of Ruth now. Uh, it's, a, it's a period of darkness for Israel during the time of the judges. And there's no such dramatic intervention in Ruth which I think actually makes the glimpses of God's steadfast love, these appearances of hope, that much more powerful to us because we see God at work in the way we most see him at work today. In our lives, in our daily lives, it's not very often, if ever, if we see the, the dramatic, dazzling displays of God's love, like the opening of the Red Sea or uh, like, like stilling the mouths of lions. There's lots of them in Daniel, wasn't there? But our daily lives are a bit more like Ruth than Daniel's. Going to work, taking care of family, struggling to pay bills, dealing with grief. See, in Ruth, we see God's said manifested through the actions of people who love God, who yearn to know him and be like him. In Ruth, hope appears when God reveals his steadfast love by working through the hands and hearts of people. People just like you and me. So let's jump back into the story and look for how this real substantial hope shows up through ordinary people choosing to reflect God's steadfast love. Uh, if you weren't here last week, I'll start with a quick refresher to help you catch up to the story. Ruth's a short, it's a short story of two women living in Judah early in Israel's history as a nation. And chapter 1 lays the foundation for this story. So we got to remember two key parts of chapter 1 throughout the whole book. They're foundational. The two key parts are that there was a crisis in chapter 1 and there was a covenant in chapter 1. Crisis and a covenant. So first the crisis. Naomi, she's the central character. And while living in her neighboring country of Moab, um, due to a famine in her homeland, Judah, her husband Elimelech dies. And then after that, both of her sons, Malon and Kilion, they both die as well. And she's left with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, who are understandably wrecked by grief and sorrow. Not only have their closest of kin all died, their husbands and Naomi's sons, but in the ancient world, these three widows are left in a precarious financial and social situation. They don't have much to call their own anymore. Naomi is living in the dark shadow of grief. She believes God has turned against her, forsaken her. The God who she's known and worshipped since she was a little girl. Her current crisis has put her in a place of bitterness towards God. She's angry at God. And like Job, she is defined by sorrow. So that's the crisis. Naomi then decides to return to her hometown of Bethlehem in Judah 
because she hears that the, the famine has ceased, that the Lord has provided food for his people. And so she urges her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, she urges them to remain in Moab, to go, to go back to their families, to remarry, to make new lives for themselves, to, to let her go home alone. It's the sensible thing to do, isn't it? And, and Orpah agrees, so she heads home to go back with her family. But Ruth, not Ruth, Ruth does the unexplainable. She does the, the even reckless. She clings to Naomi. She refuses to leave her, and she makes a covenant to her, a shocking covenant to be with her mother-in-law for the rest of her life. Here again the words of, that, of, of, of Ruth to Naomi in chapter 1. It's verse 16 to 18. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. Now today this beautiful passage of covenantal love is sometimes read at weddings. But here in Ruth, it's much more radical, isn't it? Ruth has nothing to gain by staying with Naomi. Naomi is elderly. She will need care for the rest of her life. And Ruth will then have to live as a foreigner in a a new land in Bethlehem, in a town in a country that she doesn't know, with customs she doesn't know. Um, She'll be devoting herself to a new faith, to the God of Israel, the one true God. But Ruth shows Naomi steadfast love, the hesed of God in this covenant. Yet at this point, Naomi is too blurred by grief to really see it. Ruth pledges to Naomi to love her and care for her until her dying day, an old widow. And the response by Naomi, in verse 18, she says, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So she allows it to be so. Um, but, but the darkness of her grief keeps her from really giving in or, or, or grabbing onto much hope. However, the good news of this story is that God doesn't stop offering his steadfast love to Naomi, as we'll see. He keeps giving her glimpses of hope until finally, over time, her weary, her weary soul does begin to lift. So the crisis and the covenant, those are the two things in chapter 1 that shape the whole rest of the story. And so now we'll move on to, the, to, these, to these two widows, the destitute elderly widow Naomi and the foreign widow Ruth. They've been brought together by their deceased relatives, and now this reckless covenant that Ruth's made, and they're trying to sort out life together in Bethlehem. Let's pick up the story in chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Well, Ruth wastes no time in her new surroundings. She has made this covenant to Naomi, and she, goes, she knows they need food to survive. So she goes out and starts to work. Do you see what's happening here? For Naomi, it's another flicker of hope. She has a chance for survival. Ruth is risking her personal safety 
and welfare by going to the grain fields alone to find food for them. And Ruth, well, we can't forget that this crisis in chapter 1, it's affecting her too. Her husband died. She's also grieving the loss. But Ruth has decided to lean in to following this new God that she's now living in the land of. She's made a radical vow to Naomi, and, and her decision to live for the sake of another, for Naomi, is keeping her going. She's still in grief, yes. But grief and hope can and usually do exist alongside one another to some degree. And she's also, because we see that she's also experiencing the gospel power of God's love, of his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And in this first instance, what does that look like? It looks like heading out into the fields as a day laborer to find food for her and Naomi. It's living in this kind of love that Jesus was talking about when he said, whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's the great reversal of the gospel, that in living for the sake of God and for others, we actually find life. But Ruth's boldness to go out as a foreign woman in the the field to glean by herself, which, as I said, was a dangerous thing to do, it, it actually goes further. The narrator highlights that she makes a special request of the foreman. The foreman reports in in verse 7. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So a little lesson on ancient harvesting practices. It was standard practice for gleaners, that is, the poor or the widows or those who don't have another option for food, they, uh, they can come into the fields to gather what was left over after the field was cleared by the reapers, those people with the big sickles that go through and reap the grain, and then the gatherers who followed after picking up the stalks. And then, and then the gleaners would come third. Well, apparently, Ruth is making a, a request to glean among the sheaves with the paid workers who gathered the stalks to get a share of the crop right along with the paid staff Now, Israelite law mandated that field owners left the edges and the corners of their fields for the poor to come and glean at the harvest time. But even doing this, gleaning in this crowd, uh, it didn't guarantee food. It it could have been an often ruthless and even dangerous experience. Many people were trying to get a small amount of food. And especially for a single foreign-born widow, Ruth was putting herself in a risky situation by doing this. Um, And and there was a good chance she could have worked all day long and and still come home with nothing. She knows this, and so she pushes for more. She says to the field managers, Your law says to let me glean the leftovers. But I'm desperate. I have nothing going for me, and I need some help here. We need to eat, and I have no chance on my own of getting enough food for Naomi and myself. Let me gather alongside your workers. Ruth shows us a little bit more about his said here. It's a bold, it's a risk-taking love that pushes boundaries, that isn't content to stay within the box, that goes beyond the letter of the law and gets right to the heart of it. As a new convert, Ruth pretty quickly understood a lot about the heart of God, and she calls Boaz out on it. Don't just follow the law to leave the edges of the field. Go on and feed the widows, feed the poor, and those in distress. That's what God intended by this law. That's what it was all about. Well, by God's guidance, 
Ruth has wandered into the right field to make this request. The narrator teases us a little bit in verse 3 with his understatement about God's guiding hand. He says, Ruth happened to come into the part of the field belonging to Boaz, just so happened, who we've been told is a worthy and upright righteous man. If if there was any doubt about Boaz's character, his greeting to the workers in verse 4 shows us a bit more. He greets them, the Lord be with you, and they answer, the Lord bless you. This isn't just a customary greeting. Not everyone in ancient Israel greeted each other with this liturgy. Uh, Boaz is a man who brings his faith into all he does. He takes it seriously. And it's a hint to the reader. Ruth has literally wandered into a field of grace. Boaz's reply to Ruth's request is also bold, and it doesn't disappoint. It's an over-the-top response. Listen to what he says in verses 8 to 9. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field, or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that, have, that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. This is, again, God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, coming right out of Boaz, isn't it? And it's a sign of hope for Ruth and Naomi. They just might make it. But wait a second. You may be wondering, especially if you've heard this this story before, isn't this just coming out of romantic infatuation from Boaz? Doesn't he go to lengths and lengths and roll out the red carpet for Ruth, this mysterious single woman who has wandered into his field, because he's smitten by her and he's looking for a prospective mate? You know, the story is often read that way. I know. However, I think there's a few reasons this doesn't quite fit. First, Marriage in the ancient world and in most of human history served more of an economic and a social function than a romantic one to connect families and fields and resources. Now, Boaz is a wealthy landowner and Ruth a Moabite widow. She wouldn't have been a suitable match for Boaz. But more importantly, Boaz tells us why he is eager to bless Ruth. It's her acts of faithfulness and love to Naomi that are apparently the talk of the town in Bethlehem right now. He's heard about this He's heard about the ways that she has treated her mother-in-law. And Boaz is astounded by Ruth's loving kindness to her. He's inspired by her faithfulness to God. Isn't this beautiful? God is just showering Bethlehem at this time with all these rays of hope through Ruth's loving kindness to Naomi, which has become town gossip. People are gossiping about good things. It's amazing. And it's becoming contagious. And now Boaz has moved to deeper generosity as well because of her faithfulness. And signs of God's love are contagious, aren't they? Think about when you see the Spirit of God weighing heavily upon another person and 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 it's moving them towards love. Isn't it beautiful and makes you want to be a part of it? It's exhilarating. When I see this happening in Deanna, for example, sometimes when she says to me, I have this person in my heart, maybe an old friend or someone in our community now that I I really want to reach out to and, and bless in some way. Uh, it's, it's joyful and I'm given hope by seeing God's Spirit alive in her and working through her. It certainly is evidence of it. And then I'm given joy by getting to participate in serving someone else with her. Now, these are powerful moments, and they're essential for our faith because they reorient us to what's most important. 
joining God's work in the world, joining his redemptive work in the world. Not all of our lists and all of the things we have to do um, and all of the things that we feel like these experiences interrupt us from. They're also essential for stirring up the faith of others because allowing God to work that never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love, allowing him to do that through you, it's a powerful sign of hope to other people. It really is. Someone unexpectedly gave me this just small Christmas card this morning, and I felt that sink in. It's like, it's such a gift. But let's return to the story, because Boaz isn't quite done. He has more to do. He invites Ruth to join at his table for the midday, midday meal with his workers. He gives her permission to keep gleaning with the workers, and he sends her home with extra food from the table for Naomi. One commentator, Carolyn James, describes the scene appropriately. Although Boaz wasn't hiring Ruth, his actions create a powerful gospel scene. A gleaner seated alongside paid workers, a Moabitess dining with Israelites, a man serving a woman, the poor included among the rich, an outsider embraced by the inner circle. Looks like the kind of feasting Jesus would have enjoyed a prefiguring of the kind of world his gospel restores, where there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, Ruth was on the losing end of all three categories, but Boaz refuses to maintain these boundaries. Ruth embraced God's people sight unseen on the road to Moab, and now they are embracing her. This is a gospel meal. It's a picture of a table, just kind of like the table we celebrate here, the table of the Lord, of undeserving friends. It's a beautiful picture. And again, we get to see the contagious quality of hope because it doesn't stop at this table. Ruth that gets to lug this massive amount of wheat home and her leftovers, as Clara beautifully put in a poem for us, along with her table leftovers, she gets to take it all home to the grieving Naomi and let it be a sign of hope for her too. And finally, at this point, Finally, Naomi is able to glimpse what God is up to, if at least for this moment she's able to grab onto the hope. And she blesses Boaz. She says in verse 20, May he, may Boaz, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness, who has said, has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi is at least able to start hoping again. Her grief isn't gone. I imagine she woke up the next morning. And the next, with, a pang, with still the pangs of loneliness and grief from missing her husband and her two sons that were deceased, that probably never fully went away. But she was also able to say, she was at least able to say, you know what? God's love is still for me. He hasn't forsaken me. I've seen some signs of hope, and I can see that he's still on my side. There's still darkness around me, yes. But there's also a bright flicker of light in that darkness, too. So what do we do when hope appears? When we see these glimpses of God's love coming through? In Ruth, hope is an outcome of ordinary people, people like you and me, living in response to God's steadfast love. It's really as simple and as profound as that. It's not sparked by a voice from the clouds. It's not even brought about by Naomi's dead sons or husband being raised from the dead. It's Ruth committing to Naomi 
to be with her, to care for her, and then following through, going out in the field and working, making a bold request to make sure they could eat. It's Boaz responding to Ruth with just as much generosity. Hope is people taking seriously the call to live for the sake of others. And the story to commit themselves to the widow, the mourner, the downcast. And that's the call for us too in our Advent waiting. To open our hearts to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. To ask, where can I push past the rules, past the boundaries, even past what is expected of me? in order to give those around me a reason to hope in Christ, a reason to believe that God is actually alive, that God is actually at work in the world. How can I do that? And also, if if you're in the hopeless situation right now, there's also another call, and it's to look for these signs of, of hope that God is displaying through others and receive them just as that, as signs of hope. Don't write them off. Also, don't expect everything to be worked out and perfect and all neat and tidy because that's not going to be the case on this side of eternity. We know that. But when they come, lean into it when hope appears. Allow yourself to experience it. Don't, Don't doubt or question it, but let it be rest for your weary soul. And let it be a catalyst to move you towards Jesus. Will you pray with me?